Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and I use she or they pronouns. This week, I'm talking with Philip, who, among many other things, uh, teaches security culture trainings. And I first was introduced to Philip's work on it when we had a conversation about the complexities of security culture. Security culture, uh, we'll go over it in this episode, but it's basically the idea of creating a culture of security, um, a culture of a way in creating a culture by which people don't get caught as much for the types of things that they may choose to want to do in order to advance, um, you know, their desires. Um, it's, it's for activists and revolutionaries and shit to not get fucking caught. Um, and it's a lot of good tools around how to do that kind of culturally. This podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts, and but for this week and next week, I'm going to do it a little bit differently, and instead of running a jingle for another show on the network, I'm just going to tell you about another show on the network, because I don't think they have a, a jingle yet, and basically say that um, the Maroon cast is now a member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts, and I'm very excited about that, and you all should go check it out. Also, the Institute for Anarchist Studies is... Uh, an organization that gives grants to people who, well, I'm just about to play a fucking jingle for it, so I'll just fucking play the jingle for it. Ta-da. Hey, radicals, anarchists, and all of you liberatory leftists. Are you a podcaster, video maker, multimedia artist, or writer? The Institute for Anarchist Studies wants to let you know we have grants available for projects focusing on Black and Indigenous anarchisms, police abolition and alternatives, and mutual aid. For details and how to apply, visit anarchiststudies.org and click on the grants application post on our main page. That's anarchiststudies.org, anarchiststudies.org. Applications close January 31st, 2021. Spread the word and tell your friends. Okay, so if you could introduce yourself with whatever name you want to go by, your pronouns, and I guess um, kind of a little bit about what brought you to this work of teaching security culture trainings. Yeah, um, my name is Philip. Uh, I use they, them pronouns. I'm living in Suquamish territory on the Salish Sea. Um, I've been involved in uh, a lot of solidarity work with indigenous liberation movements and black liberation movements that has exposed me to a lot of uh, frontline experiences and experiences with state repression um, both immediately and down the line. And in response to those encounters with law enforcement, with uh, legal repression, and with the effects that that has on our movements, um, me and a lot of friends and comrades have dived into learning about security culture, learning about the tools and the techniques that we can all use to keep each other safe, and also learning about the ways that the state uh, works to isolate our movements, to discredit our movements, uh, basically to disempower us so that we're able to be more informed about how to take care of each other. So I'm definitely deeply indebted to a lot of Black and Indigenous liberation movements for developing these skills and passing them on. Um, and I'm here to just try to contribute now what I've been taught and foster a conversation about how we can be moving into this like pretty unprecedented territory um, in the world of new state surveillance, expanding state surveillance, more encounters with police, but also with right-wing vigilantes, mm-hmm. paramilitary groups, white supremacists, and some of the tools we can use. That makes sense. Yeah, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on in particular is a conversation that we had about the 
the nuances of security culture, and I'm, I'm really excited to get into that stuff. But for people who have no idea what we're talking about, could you introduce the, the concept of security culture? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I feel like there's a lot of intersections between security culture and a lot of other topics that you've had on this show or that you might have on in the future. Um, ultimately, I think of security culture as this big framework, and it's a framework that helps us reduce risk for ourselves when we're engaging in social movement work, um, basically by protecting sensitive information. So one definition might be it's like a mix of interpersonal and organizational and technical practices that mm-hmm. help us be more resilient to state repression. Um, it's it's a shared set of customs that helps us minimize risk by explicitly naming some norms over our boundaries and over our communication, and that helps us lessen our uh, paranoia, um, reducing ambiguity, and feeling more secure as we're engaging with the inherently risky work of challenging unjust power systems. So, so what are some of the examples of that when you talk about like changing social norms in order to accommodate security culture? Like, you know, what comes to mind with that? Yeah, well, I think the, the first thing to say is intentionally or unintentionally, we all have a set of security practices that we do mm-hmm. as human beings. We all have boundaries with each other, intentional or unintentional, and the point of security culture is really to be explicit about those boundaries. Um, I, you know, I really want to do a shout out that a lot of people already practice security culture and situational awareness in their daily lives, mm-hmm. you know, especially trauma survivors, um, people who are targeted by police and state surveillance. But some of those specific boundaries and norms that we might use would be um, having you know, a clear idea of what information is sensitive and then not sharing that information with people who don't need to know it to protect yourself and to protect them. Mm-hmm. Like, so concretely, uh, like, so that, go ahead. Yeah, so that would, you know, a big obvious one is like, don't talk about illegal activities that mm-hmm. you have done or that you're thinking about doing or asking someone else if they've done it. Um, a big thing might be like, oh, yeah, I thought I saw you at this protest the other week doing this illegal action. Was that you? How does that feel to you? That's a big thing that we wouldn't do. That's Mm -hmm. a pretty clear violation of norms and boundaries over not wanting people to expose themselves in that way. But what if you want to change your profile picture to like you throwing a brick on like Facebook? And and that's another one, you know, it's uh, not only the explicit things that we share with each other, but also what is available to the outside world, to law enforcement or to right-wing groups through our social media presences, um, through, you know, just things that are immediately perceptible, like bumper stickers or like the Antifa uniform that we're wearing, mm-hmm. being aware of the information that we're communicating, even if it's nonverbal. Mm-hmm. One of so the... I do want to say, mm-hmm. Go ahead. one of the main things is we should be aware of the sensitivity of the information and limit the information that's sensitive. And then the flip side of that is not stressing about information that is not sensitive. So it's mm-hmm. not only, you know, being discreet and confidential about things that could expose us to 
uh, legal targeting, but also then shedding the worry and the anxiety of, oh, do I need to be lying to everyone in my life because they asked me what kind of coffee I like and they're trying to build a case against me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I, you know, it's like when I, when people first started talking about security culture around me, uh, I ran into a lot of, we kind of all ran into a lot of issues of it with it where it would cause like a lot of paranoia and then also a lot of like bravado and like it definitely when practiced poorly can be kind of not a very pleasant culture to be in like it can become a culture of paranoia um Mm -hmm. but one of the things that i always really like doing you know okay so it's like all right if you if you engage in a culture where you just don't talk about crime like you 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 kind of have this sense that everyone around you is doing crime and that's cool assuming they're doing cool crime because lots of good things and bad things are, are crime um you can kind of just like like one of the things that I try and tell people is just like assume that everyone is a secret badass. Like the shitty kid who's been like sleeping on your couch for two weeks and like doesn't do her dishes enough or whatever. Like maybe she's getting up to like really wild shit or maybe she's on the run, you know, and, and, uh, and kind of just assuming that everyone is up to something cool and therefore you just don't need to know it. I don't, I don't know. That's, that's something that's always worked for me. I, I, yeah yeah i and i think there's absolutely something to be said there about it takes a lot of intentional work to sort of decouple these practices from some of the just the other cultural norms that we all have Mm -hmm. and that being a big thing of social clout yeah you know wanting especially in a movement space to be able to like celebrate the badass shit that we're doing Mm -hmm. and one of the awkward things about security culture or that makes it a little counterintuitive to people who are just learning it is that a lot of times the things that maybe have the biggest impact on our lives or that we're spending a lot of time or energy working on or that were these really activating or traumatizing or fun and exciting experiences we had, we can't really talk about with other people, both for our safety and their safety. Mm-hmm. And so it's really nice then to think not only, you know, is that something that we shouldn't do, but then also allowing us to think about, well, what are some of the positive ways that we can still be fostering community connection and, you know, healthy, strong relationships and trust with people where we're not having to communicate about risky things that could implicate us in like all sorts of lingual entanglements, Mm -hmm. but instead we can be still be building vulnerability and trust with each other. And that's a really big, important part of security culture that I think gets missed by a lot of people is that this is a great opportunity actually for us to think about what are our community norms around communication and interpersonal dynamics and what are some of the ways that we can shape those intentionally to like really build trust and group cohesion and the ability to make us all feel like we're able to do the things that we need to do to survive in this world while staying safe. Okay, so what are some of those things? So I think a a big one is that building trust with each other is an active process that we all need to be doing, Mm -hmm. especially in movement work. Um, One of the big things that I think is really important is being able to, uh, you know, talk about harmful and difficult dynamics that come up about conflict that comes up about addressing accountability and how much of state repression is able to impact movements by fracturing us along pre-existing tensions that we aren't able to work through. 
So there's a lot of examples in that historically of states targeting movements, basically, where there was already distrust that was unable to be resolved and fracturing movements by encouraging people to distrust each other because they weren't able to work through conflict. So you're basically talking about how the way that the state will uh, essentially like bad jacket or, or, or fed jacket people like in order to sow distrust, like basically like pick apart like so-and-so is unpopular or maybe so-and-so actually caused harm, right? Like so-and-so abused someone or assaulted someone or is, you know, in accountability around it or evading accountability about around it, basically like sowing distrust about therefore like that person doing state work or what do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that is one popular example. Um, we can definitely talk about that, about both how the state uses false accusations, mm-hmm. you know, maybe to break trust, but also how real continued harm, real accusations are then downplayed when we're existing in this like defensive reactive space of being, oh, well, if, you know, we're going to be talking about these things, then it's obviously a bad jacketing. And so our movements are put in between a rock and a hard place because of just the widespread norm that exists of not being able to address conflict when it comes up. Um, but another way that that also happens is is just how not only direct state intervention can fracture movements, but even the perception of mm-hmm. state intervention, the, the fear and paranoia that gets spread through knowing that we're surveilled, through knowing that there's all these historical examples of actual state harm and us imagining then that we are being actively targeted at that time and us fracturing under that stress, even mm-hmm. when there's not active state repression that happened to our specific movements. And so it ends up that we almost start policing and repressing ourselves and we're doing the state work for it. I guess like one of the things that I think about about this is I, I, I try to use history and awareness of that connection to actually, hmm, how do I want to say this? It's like, I assume everyone's a cop um, and that makes me not paranoid. And I feel like there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. But for me and the security culture that I practice, and I, this might be wildly unpopular, I, I just, um, I assume that a decent portion of the people that I'm friends with and close with, so possibly people I've been known and, and working with for decades, might be um, state agents. Or I've certainly had a lot of friends, a lot of people very close to me uh, become state agents, become um, informants on in different mm-hmm. cases. And because I'm able to do that, it kind of doesn't break my trust um, because I know that I'm like firewalling all the information that I'm putting out there, right? I'm I'm thinking about what I say to whom. And because of that, you know, when someone turns out to be a state agent, I'm like, well, okay, like I didn't trust them anyway. Um, so I, I was careful about what I said to them. And you know, and obviously this can be done in a very, a very bad way, but I, I don't know. I, I find it really useful to study basically like, like we can look at the history of COINTELPRO and it can like, you know, drive us into a lot of fear and a lot of like, just looking over our shoulders constantly. Right. Or we can look at it and be like, okay, this is the situation that we may or may not be in. And 
what are the right steps to take if that's the situation we're in? And I think for me, I, I mostly watch this be much harder on people for whom it's a shock for people who come in and are like, wow, we're all doing this wild shit together and this is so great. And then it turns out that you're all being surveilled or, you know, two of you are cops or something like that. And it's kind of heartbreaking and, and causes more fear as compared yeah. to if you just enter it, knowing that that's going to be the case. Absolutely. And, and I think you highlight two things there that feel really important to me in a security culture practice. So one is just having those proactive boundaries and that discretion and just making that part of your everyday life, part of mm -hmm. your way of relating with people and not this whole other mindset that you are adapting just in moments of direct action. Mm -hmm. Basically assuming like, I just don't want to publicly share anything that I don't want read back to me at a grand jury hearing. Right. I think another thing that is really important with what you just said is how important learning from history and looking at the concrete and well-documented examples of state repression that we can learn from prepares us to be able to be more resilient. And that that is an actually really important part of being able to evaluate risk and being able to care for ourselves and being able to know what's coming down the line. Mm -hmm. And that that should be something that we're constantly doing. And it's a lot of work, but I think that's one of the things that I'm been really excited by is just thinking about all these different resources and tracking the terrain of state repression and being able to then sort of say ahead of the ball as best we can with thinking about what sort of terrain we have to be working in and the actual tools and maneuverability that the state has or that right-wing groups have to be interfacing with us. You know, it feels not, not to minimize the very real risks that many people are experiencing by confronting white supremacy and mm -hmm. capitalism and state violence. But thinking about this on a little bit more exploded of a level, it feels like we're, you know, kind of playing this like big elaborate board game mm -hmm. and that state repression isn't functioning in the way of just pure unbridled force being exacted on any sort of social movement. There are absolutely moments of that. You know, we have seen assassinations, we have seen brutalization. There are many historical examples. You know, bombs were dropped on the MOVE Collective in Philadelphia. Police assassinated Fred Hampton of the Black Panthers while he slept in his bed. Mm -hmm. There are big examples of that, but by and large, at least as far as, you know, the material that is publicly available to reflect from, the way that state repression happens is more by controlling dissent through these sort of like light touches by erecting the container that social movements and public opinion exist in and trying to have that subtle touch, you know, that sort of negotiated management or that controlled mm -hmm. management, similar to a lot of ways of how street protests are handled by police now, instead of it just being an upright brutality, it's more of negotiating with movement leaders, shutting the terrain. And if we're able to track that and we're able to keep a good tab on where public opinion is at, keep a good tab on what sort of restraints the state has for interacting with us, for not trying to move public opinion towards supporting popular movements. You know, we're able to then track the sort of tools that we have available to be able to challenge these systems and have 
a little more strategy, a little more creativity, you know, thinking outside of the box and really engaging with this in a very adaptive and flexible and like spontaneous way. And I think that's one of the greatest strengths of decentralized movements is being able to be really flexible and responsive in a way that the state and other authoritarian or hierarchically organized systems aren't able to keep up with. To keep asking you kind of the same question over and over again, but can you give um, examples of that? Like what, what is it about decentralization that gives us that kind of advantage? Like, or what are some examples of people using that advantage? So, I mean, one great example is just looking at the trove of documents that gets produced through surveillance of movements Mm -hmm. and realizing how little these different analysts and intelligence agencies actually understand about social movements and about organizing. And Mm -hmm. so one example of that is specifically, um, there was a great series published by The Intercept after Standing Rock Mm -hmm. about this intelligence agency, Tiger Swan, and all the surveillance that they did on the Standing Rock movement. And this is an enormous cache of documents. You know, the state spent millions of dollars surveilling and compiling networks and trying to understand how these movements were working on the ground to be able to contain them and neutralize them. And yet at the same time, the state just didn't seem to fundamentally understand how it was possible that such a large movement wasn't operating along a like traditional military structuring. They were naming people who were, you know, a media spokesperson or someone who had a popular Instagram feed who was documenting a lot of it as the leader of the movement or as supplying arms mm-hmm. when that was so clearly not the case to anyone who was able to participate on the ground. And so that smokescreen of the state not understanding the organic flows of movements or how it's possible for things to exist in a yeah. non fashion, it creates this haze that allows us to kind of keep you know, the specifics of how we're relating with each other um, protected from that surveillance and allows us to remain safe. Yeah. I had a... I, um, Go ahead. Another, I mean, the counterpoint to that is just when states, when militaries are engaging with traditionally organized enemies, you know, whatever it might be, of a, a centrally commanded military unit, um, it's really easy to, you know, be able to identify the central command and eliminate it versus, you know, states, armies, militaries engaging with irregular guerrilla warfare is a very difficult situation to be able to differentiate between combatants and Mm non-combatants. And, you know, I really love to point out the example of the United States military losing to the Viet Cong, you know, the greatest military empire power on the planet losing to some communist guerrillas mm-hmm. in the jungle who, you know, were able to operate in a way that this empire was just not able to respond to. Yeah. So that's like one of the things that I like about security cultures. It helps create that, um, that smoke screen because, and I like the way that phrasing it as a smoke screen where they have a hard time seeing what a decentralized movement is doing. And a lot of times we don't understand what a decentralized movement is doing. It's like, I feel like whenever I'm engaged in a very, chaotic and organic situation, I spend about half my time just trying to figure out what's going on, right? And in order to understand what's happening so I can figure out how to best engage with it. But on the other hand, I like how a security culture, it's like, I don't know which of my friends are up to things besides what they talk about. 
and I, I don't need to know. And it also, it helps, it helps to minimize, I mean, like, uh, you, you, you brought up earlier about the like social clout and like, I, I think one of the things that destroys movements is, um, social capitalism is the idea of like, everyone's trying to gain clout. Everyone's trying to, you know, I mean, to say it cynically, um, you know, like have the coolest podcast and get all everyone to support your Patreon or whatever the fuck. Right. But, and even if you're trying to do that for the best of reasons, even if you're trying to do that in order to like, um, you know, get out good ideas or whatever, social capital ends up playing a lot into it. And social capital games are really dangerous and way (laughs) more than like being a cool podcaster or whatever, being a cool militant is like to the people who know that's like extra cool. And you get way too much say Mm -hmm. in what's going on. If everyone like, is like, Oh yeah. Like she's doing all this like crazy shit. Right. And it's kind of this thing. It's like a little bit hard, but you kind of like learn to just accept like, Oh, all right. Well, like I'm a secret badass and no one knows. Well, like not me, but like, you know, maybe when I was younger, I don't know. Um, but like, I don't know. It, it, it you talk about the smokescreen thing. It's just like, I literally don't know who's up to no good, you know? And that, that's great. It feels mm-hmm. really good. I'm like, I literally can't snitch cause I have no fucking clue. Um, <laughs> One of the things that you were talking about earlier or that we were talking about earlier that I feel like is worth uh, breaking down for people who are, you know, I mean, obviously this podcast is, is about um, preparedness, right? And I believe that revolt is an important mm-hmm. part of preparedness, but people might not necessarily know what we're talking about when we talk about like snitch jacketing, fed jacketing, bad jacketing, um, you know, which are like slang terms or terms that we've come up with because this shit happens over and over and over again and we want ways to be able to identify it quickly but what the fuck do those mean um are you able to break that down sure yeah um let me first let's Mm -hmm. first like explicitly name some of the tools of state repression Mm -hmm. i think that might be a helpful thing yeah explicit stuff and my and my like conceptualization Ultimately, we have to recognize that challenging an unjust power system, that power system has a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. So as we're challenging white supremacy, capitalism, militarism, you know, we are putting ourselves in a position where those systems are going to want to then minimize our ability to change them. And we get our power through working together collectively. And so I kind of see the fundamental tool of state repression as being isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a quote that I always go to of how clear that is, is from J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director of the FBI during the um, counterintelligence program against the Black Panthers, mm-hmm. where his main objective, he you know writes that it's to expose, to disrupt, misdirect, discredit, and otherwise neutralize the activities of these Black nationalist organizations. Mm-hmm. So there's a really intentional, conscious push from these state actors to isolate us and to neutralize us. And the ways that they do that historically has been through surveillance, both to gather information, but also also as a um, as a sort of intimidation, you know, show of power um, through arrests, whether that's legitimate or illegitimate, uh, through grand juries and legal intimidation. Um, through smear campaigns in the media and discrediting movements or, you know, saying these protesters are bad because they engage in these types of tactics mm-hmm. through disinformation and spreading paranoia within movements, um, promoting infighting, 
blackmail, infiltration, entrapment, threats, um, and, you know, again, all the way up to police brutality and outright assassinations. But Mm -hmm. so a big way has been by planting informants, by planting undercover agents and those undercover agents either provoking people into committing acts that the state is then able to use as justification for repression. Um, So we've seen that with the RNC, the Republican National Convention, where um, an undercover agent encouraged two people to try to use Molotov cocktails, and then that resulted in them getting arrested and facing lengthy prison sentences uh, Mm. through federal court. Um, But undercovers and informants also can be there to just spread misinformation, to break trust, to disrupt group dynamics. And that's just been a really clear way that popular movements have been repressed historically. And so I think that's a reason that it's really easy for us now as we're worried about security to say, oh, there must be an informant or like, oh, I know that this has happened in the past. And so Mm -hmm. I'm extra aware of this possibility. And one of the outcomes of that is that people who are suspected of being um, involved in movements with bad intentions can be labeled as an informant or as a snitch. And so that's basically snitch jacketing is when you say, I think this person is working for the police or is providing information mm-hmm. without having clear evidence. And this is something that's really personal to me because I, you know, I've learned a lot of my security practices through trial and error and there's been error and I've, I've messed up and I've hurt friends and I've, I've hurt movements that I've been a part of um, through dynamics just like this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, something I want to hold a lot of humility and hold a lot of accountability for is that I'm saying all these things, but these aren't these aren't easy things to implement. Yeah. You know, the response to snitch jacketing or, or the, re- the response to thinking that someone might be a snitch isn't to snitch jacket, but to confront them directly with your concerns and be able to establish, you know, some way of trying to work through that conflict. Um, being able to address other people with your concerns with your direct concerns, not, not mm-hmm. things that you are assuming or projecting and, you know, being able to name things directly as they are. So saying, Oh, I am skeptical of this person because they are sketching me out by taking photos in times that I think are really inappropriate mm-hmm. or because they're always asking questions that kind of seem to be digging at trying to expose illegal activities, or I'm not really sure if they are who they say they are because they're never telling me any information about where they're from or what they do. Right. And so therefore this person clearly must be working for the FBI and is here as a plant to disrupt our movement. Therefore this person is a snitch. And I mean, yes, sure. That has happened historically, but in my appraisal labeling someone as a snitch does probably just as much, if not more damage than just name than that person actually being a snitch because it's, all of a sudden creating a huge atmosphere of distrust. Right. It's creating paranoia. It's um, exposing huge divisions within the movement. And so even if that person isn't a snitch, by labeling them as a snitch, you've essentially just done the state's work for them of spreading distrust and isolation within movements. Which is cool because then you can say, oh, that person snitch jacketing people, they must be a fed. Um, You know, because... 
if you're doing the state's work. Uh, obviously, don't do that. And that's called Fed jacketing, the idea of saying instead of, it's the same fucking concept. It's like, you know, so it says probably yeah. Fed instead of, um, yeah, one of the ways that I've always heard people talk about it that I've always appreciated is just judge people by their behavior, not whether or not, like, they're a cop. Like, so rather than assuming, yeah. I think that person's a cop, just be like, this person is doing something that is making us all less safe. So address that, you know, um, address the fact that this person is taking pictures at inappropriate times, address your distrust of someone, right? But not by saying like, I think they're a cop, um, unless you have hard fucking evidence that they're a cop, you know? Yeah. I, I really go back time and time again in thinking about security culture and seeing really clear intersections between security culture and harm reduction and transformative justice mm-hmm. and conflict resolution. You know, I think in our society, we aren't given a lot of tools for working through conflict. And that is especially aggravated by being in this very intense atmosphere that a lot of activists are existing under. Mm-hmm. But if we were able to proactively before engaging in movement work together as much as possible, generate what those norms are and what our shared agreements for how we're sharing space with each other are, then we're able to set the container. And then when someone steps over those boundaries, we're able to hold them accountable more directly. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately what security culture is. You know, it's culture as a set of shared practices that are embodied that we're using all the time. And I think it's really important, again, to just make that explicit. And I know that's not always possible because Mm -hmm. sometimes we're working with people that we just met. But as much as we're able to, I really like to think about what it would look like if we were able to generate explicit norms and boundaries with each other and then be able to hold each other to that and say, hey, you're making me uncomfortable right now because I told you earlier that I wasn't interested in talking about my historical involvement in that movement. And you're asking me a lot of questions about it. And so I'm just going to ask that you stop asking me those questions Yeah. instead of saying, Oh, well, this person is now a snitch. Right. But that level of direct communication is challenging and it's really challenging, especially when we're all working in adrenalized frontline environments or when we haven't gotten a lot of sleep and we're just existing off coffee and cigarettes. And it really speaks to me of just how much there needs to be this intentional push of like building in uh, like a feminist ethic of care and of, mm-hmm. of group cohesion and of saying like, we are going to work through this together. One of the things when you talk about holding people accountable to these new social norms that we create, this sort of brings up kind of the, the, the dark side of, um, security culture which is clickishness and uh well it's two things mm-hmm. when i think of the downsides of security culture I'm, I'm clearly a proponent of security culture i'm trying to do an episode on it but when i when i think of the things that we need to be aware of as we attempt to implement it the two biggest downsides that i think about is um creating clickish closed off social circles and basically making you know obviously we would never want to be called a vanguard but you know a, a revolutionary click um and also uh basically making ourselves ineffective. Those are the two biggest concerns that I have. And one of the things that I would say about it is that like, if we hold people and this actually what you're talking about is great for this because you talk about like trying to set these social norms explicitly. 
instead of just having them be implicit, right? Because when we hold people accountable to social norms that they don't know about, like, that's not a good way to build a movement, you know? Um, if people, like, come in and yeah. they, they act in ways that are totally normal for them and, the and like, you know, their culture, which isn't, like, cool kid anarchy or whatever the fuck, um, it's really quick, it's really easy if we take these, if we, if these if these social norms and if these boundaries are so important to us and, you know, many of them should be very important to us. But if we, if we see them as like something that of course people should just know and respect, then we just kick everyone out and get fucking nowhere. Yeah. That is a really important thing to bring up. And I think especially talking about security as this adaptive changing field, mm -hmm. the practices we have in the way that we approach this work needs to change as the moment that we're organizing in changes. And I personally learned a lot of my security culture norms and practices through the lens of an anarchist punk subculture, mm -hmm. um, specifically through the lens of uh, frontline forest defense and other land defense campaigns. And the sort of tools and cultural norms that came out of that are ones that evolved really to protect people who were working in small groups or by themselves, engaging in very risky actions, mm -hmm. um, you know, generally like under the cover of night, so to speak. And so it did lead to a set of practices that had an inherent clickiness to them. Um, I think we're in a really different historical moment right now. I think we're in a moment where mass unrest has spread all across the country in a way that I think is pretty historically unprecedented within the United States. And our security culture norms should change to reflect this mass moment we're in. So yeah. it's no longer the same situation as it was in the late 90s or early 2000s during the Green Scare. And one of the most important things that our movement can and needs to be doing during this time is being accessible to people who are newly becoming politically active, who don't have those subcultural norms and are coming into movement spaces for maybe the first time and are excited to be part of this huge uprising. Yeah. And so something I've experienced a lot of the time is just as much as there's that social clout of, you know, being the badass militant, I think there's also the social clout of being the super secure militant. Oh, yeah, totally. Doesn't answer any questions and is super dodgy and mm -hmm. you don't know anything about them. And that's, I think, a really alienating experience for people who are just coming to movements for the first time without having that sort of background. And is almost as much of a risk mm -hmm. as the state repression itself for isolating our movements. You know, we're not existing solely in a static confrontation with state repression um but the the terrain is changing a lot and so we need to be evaluating what the different risks of our actions are and if the risk of state repression because our security culture is too weak mm -hmm. is lower than the risk of isolation because our security culture is too strong then we need to be changing our security culture yeah yeah i i um you know, the 
<laughs> the less directly involved I am in the streets, the more I read history, uh, which is sort of a classic getting older move, which I'm not super proud of, but whatever. Um, and one of the things that I'm like learning more and more as I read through different revolutionary history is that like, sometimes the only way to be safe is to fucking win. Like, mm-hmm. and there's that quote, uh, shit, it's a German person. I don't remember, even remember what revolution it was from. Uh, it was like before the 1848 stuff, but it was, this revolutionist proto has a quote, um, uh, those, those who make half a revolution dig their own grave. And, mm. you know, and that person watched their friends die in jail, right? And, like, because if we, if we go halfway, we're, we're just going to fucking lose and, or die or, you know, whatever. Like, like if, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think about absolutely. it a lot with like this in the current moment, like to just be like really concrete and to not, I am not giving advice at all. Like I just, I literally don't know what the best thing to do is, but I think we need to have a conversation about it. Is that like, okay. So on, on one level, taking pictures of burning cop cars is a really good way to get someone sent to prison. Right. Especially if you take pictures of people who are setting cop cars on fire, which I think you just shouldn't fucking do. Um, but if it weren't absolutely 100 for all listeners, don't take yeah. photos of people doing illegal activity. But it's also the pictures of cop cars on fire that are causing the revolt to spread, right? Um, mm-hmm. And a movement that says no journalists, or you know, certainly like no, no, um. And I am not trying to fucking weigh in on this. I I am way too armchair on this particular uprising because I live somewhere where it's not particularly conflictual. Um, but, but it's, it's not as simple as like, just like no one ever take pictures of any of this ever. No one talk about what's happening ever because if people don't mm-hmm. know that this shit is happening, no one's going to get inspired. Um, and for me, that has always, uh, that has always worked out to me and take a picture of like, the broken window rather than the person breaking the window, you know, there's like, yeah. Um, but it's, which is, which is a security culture tool right there Mm -hmm. of you're recognizing the different risks inherent in each activity, Mm -hmm. the risk of someone getting legally implicated through a photo or the risk of your movement getting drowned out in the media cycle because Mm -hmm. there isn't popular media representing what we're doing. Yeah. And then specifically you're talking about our intentional ability to choose how to navigate those risks and doing something that gives us the benefit of having our own popular media of being able to build the movement while doing our best to protect people from the Mm -hmm. like actual legal evidence of, Oh, here is this photo of you doing such and such action. Yeah. And again, it's hard to know specifically what kind of photos might lead to incriminating evidence hypothetically, mm-hmm. but we can make educated guesses. And really it is all about risk management and knowing the risks. And it's not a one-sided risk. It's not, there's just the risk of state repression. You're absolutely right that the risk of isolation and of getting swept swept under the rug is going to be a huge thing. And I, you know, again, it feels difficult to try to talk about this in an hour-long podcast because there feels mm-hmm. like so many very large, important intersections between security culture and all these other 
fields that you could, you know, have an entire another interview about. But I yeah. think one important one is movement strategy. And, you know, so being another armchair philosopher with you here, <laughs> looking at the historical moment of Biden about to enter the White House, you know, for the last four years, there's been this coalition of middle class liberals aligning themselves more actively with anti-fascist and radical left movements mm -hmm. because there's been this clear enemy in the eyes of a Trump presidency. And I think historically we can see that once there's a return to quote unquote normalcy, you know, to attempt to reestablish the neoliberal order, there's going to be a move by the democratic party, by the centrist and the liberals, to separate themselves from the radical anarchists, the radical left, the mm -hmm. militant component that has been supporting their return to power in some ways by being positioned against Trump. And I think it's really important to think about what that means for us practicing security at this time of trying to weigh the pros and the risks of maintaining that relationship and trying to use this as a time to continue to build power and not sort of go back to the edges Mm -hmm. of the social sphere because there's a Democrat in office. Again, I'm not providing any concrete <laughs> recommendations, but I do think we should think about the implications of our actions. And, you know, one big place of this is thinking about how in different contexts, militant actions can be really inspiring mm -hmm. or they can be really alienating for the rest of the population. Mm -hmm. And there, there are times that militant actions can totally fractionalize and destroy a movement mm -hmm. and potentially this could be one of those times you know again I'm, I'm not trying to say that people should or shouldn't do anything but i think we should think about the coalition that has been being built for the last four years and how we can try to use this time to strengthen it and try to build more collective power with people who are shifting further and further to the left from the centrist position mm -hmm. instead of holding up in our militancy and our purity of our anarchist movement because that is going to leave us high and dry to fascists and then to state repression and so it's going to be a good cop bad cop of the liberals and the fascists against us when you talk about like there are times when militant action will inspire people and there are times where it'll divide people i think about like people often make one claim or the other you know they'll say like oh, violence alienates people or fighting the police alienates people. And it's like, first of all, it's like, yeah, probably alienates certain people, but there's other people who certainly are like, oh, these people are like actually fucking about it and they're willing to like defend themselves and each other. And that's really inspiring, right? Totally. And it's, it's going to be different with different people. Mm -hmm. But I think about it when I like, just to talk about survival bullshit that I think about way too often, when I'm building a fire in a precarious situation and, you know, building a campfire in a pre precarious situation, there are times when if you blow on the fire, it goes out. Um, and But also, if you never blow on the fire, you'll never have a fire and it'll go out. And, uh, you know, that's the main metaphor that I think of when I think of that shit. Um, when you, you just have to know the right moments, you have to know the right moments, both like sort of on a tactical level of like reading the crowd around you and also on a strategic level. Um I personally think that the main way to not go back to the margins is to like not be fucking shy about what we believe in and that it's a reasonable thing to believe yeah. and to like 
Absolutely. Avoid clickishness. And it even gets into some of the security culture stuff you were talking about earlier. I was thinking about it where it was like, like I have these like fucking Nazis. Hey, Nazis listening to the show. Hello. Um, and I'm just so impressed by the fact that people might hate listen to a podcast. And, you know, and like one of the things that like Nazis always try and do when they dox people or whatever, right, is they're like, they're going to like tell people, right? They're going to be like, and like, you can't fucking call my family and be like, did you know your daughter's an anarchist? You know, you can't even call the local cops and be like, did you know Margaret Kiljoy is an anarchist? Right. And I'm in a different position than most people. Right. Because I, I intentionally do a lot of public facing work, but, but still on like an interpersonal level, just fucking be about what you're about and don't be ashamed of being about what you're about without shaming other people for being about what they're about. And that's how you find common ground. And that's how you like, like one of my goals is I want people Mm -hmm. to be like, like I know people who don't shit on the anarchists when all this stuff started because they like know some good anarchists who are nice to them. Yeah. And so a lot of people want to hide the fact that they're anarchists or whatever other given like radical leftist position. And sometimes that's necessary from a security point of view, but you, you brought it up earlier when you were talking about how there's certain certain things you do have to keep hush hush right like like no one should specifically know like well, actually it's funny i just like basically don't commit crime um but no one should specifically know i like you know graffitied a building in 2002 which i actually didn't do but um like they don't need to know that right but I'm going to be like, yeah, I was involved in anti-war movement in 2002 or whatever the fuck to date myself, you know? And like, it's useful. And I don't know. It's, it's, sorry, yeah. it's just stuff I think about way too much. And the other part of it that you were talking about that I want to bring up is that when I first got into anarchism, my, my friend was like, oh, anarchists, you're the berserkers of the peace movement. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, when they need people to go run at the front and die, that's you. And and he was talking shit, but more and more I see that like um radicals have a high risk tolerance, right? And anti-authoritarians mm-hmm. in particular have often been willing to build coalitions with people and willing to put ourselves at risk for um broader movement goals with people who turn around and like turn their backs on us and let us go to jail or whatever. And I don't think that means that we shouldn't be risk tolerant. I don't think that it means like in some ways this is our advantage, but we do have to learn how to not be useful idiots. I don't know. Yeah. And especially right now, as there's this nationwide conversation about defunding and abolishing the police, Mm -hmm. it feels like such an important time to be putting these anarchist perspectives mm-hmm. forward in a way that's actually contributing to people within the broader community, being able to see us publicly and proudly mm-hmm. showing that we can live our values in this way. And it also, I think, is worth noting that different people have different stakes, mm-hmm. um, whether that's totally. based on social location or the activities we're involved in, the types of projects we're doing. But personally speaking, as a white person, you know, I've got different social privileges and resources that I'm able to use. And so being Mm -hmm. able to mobilize a lot of the social capital I have, and then add that with a layer of saying, oh, and actually, I do fully believe that we should abolish the police and abolish prisons. 
and implement transformative justice frameworks. Mm -hmm. Doing that doesn't really pose much of a risk to me. Mm -hmm. And it makes this entire project a lot more legible. And I do feel like there's been a big concern I've seen in a lot of anarchist communities about being authentic with our politics. You know, there's sort of been an emphasis that I've experienced of people maybe downplaying their politics and trying to more just live their politics directly through Mm -hmm. the actions they do. And that's important. Of course, that's important. Um, But I do think that we're in a very different moment right now. And you're right that I think it's a bit of a sink or swim time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we even see this, like, to take anarchism out of it for a second, like Antifa or, you know, anti-fascism. Like, they really tried to red scare that shit really fucking hard in the past couple of years. And it mm-hmm. it clearly worked for a large minority of the population, right? Antifa is like code for terrorist to a huge chunk of the population, but only a minority of the population. And I think it's the reason is that only a minority of the population is that so many people of all walks of life were just like, what? Yeah, that's normal. It's totally normal to be against fascism. <laughs> and like watching Richard Spencer get punched and then having the whole world just be like, yeah, no, that, that tracks. I don't know. Punch white supremacists. That makes sense to me. And, and so when we refuse to, when we, when we're about what we're about, like, I, I think it fucking helps. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, I want to just go back to security culture, having, risk management as Mm -hmm. one of its core goals and aims. And um, I come from a background of, of doing a lot of like large management type projects where I interact with all these sort of tools that get developed in like the business world or the nonprofit world for making decisions. Mm -hmm. It's actually a really helpful, helpful like resource bin to go and get stuff from. And one of those tools is a risk matrix so mm-hmm. it's basically a graph where you have likelihood of something happening on one side and then severity if this thing did happen or you know negative mm-hmm. impact if this thing did happen and then you can kind of plot different scenarios on there on how likely they are to happen versus the negative impact so the likelihood of this problem versus the severity of the problem helps us make decisions about how to approach all those problems. So like one thing would be driving is something that we do every day. It happens very frequently. And the possibility of you getting into a car crash would have really high, you know, potentially lethal consequences. And so as a result, car companies put all of this energy into safety mechanisms and airbags and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So thinking about this in a security context situation, by actually quantifying by explicitly naming the different potential outcomes of the work we're doing and the risks associated with them, I think it helps us visualize it more. Mm -hmm. And so the risk of us being authentic about our politics and of then experiencing state repression Mm -hmm. seems like a very high impact risk. And so we are risk adverse to that or Mm -hmm. I historically have been risk adverse to being authentic about my politics. But the much higher likelihood, although lower risk, much higher likelihood outcome 
is that being isolated and not being able to build our movements mm-hmm. has resulted in anarchism being socially isolated historically and you know of neoliberalism or centrist regimes being able to just marginalize and invisibilize these groups mm-hmm. and i know that these are things that we've already been talking about but i think that that same sort of risk matrix can help us similarly with maybe smaller decisions if we're making a decision about what types of actions we feel comfortable personally engaging in during a campaign mm-hmm. you know we can think about okay these are the different frameworks that we have for uh, what capacity the local police have, um, the amount of surveillance that we feel we're being under, uh, the likelihood of this action succeeding, and actually being able to graph all these things can help us make informed decisions in a way that just thinking about or just talking about it, sometimes it can get lost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Another tool mm -hmm. that I really appreciate using a little bit is um, kind of on that same note it's the spectrum of risk I think it came Mm -hmm. from CrimeThink but it talks about different vulnerabilities of actions um, to to state repression like different levels of like illicitness of actions so you know from the most mainstream and acceptable of a permitted march Mm -hmm. to you know the most nefarious evil militant anarchist thing you can imagine and a whole spectrum in between them. And then for those different actions or activities, there's a different accompanying level of security discretion that we can use where with the mainstream march, you want to be as public as possible about it because your objective is to get the message out, to get people out, to make a big strong showing. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the evil nefarious nighttime plot, you don't want any public attention on it whatsoever until it's completed. Right. Theoretically, you know, whatever the objectives are. And again, a whole spectrum in the middle. And so, especially as this time is showing us the strength of popular movements, getting hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets. I do think that we're leaning maybe more towards the wanting to be public side of things. And if we're using security tools, if we're using discretion that limits the reach, then we're actually inflicting harm upon ourselves by being overly cautious. And so we are then engaging in, again, the isolation that Mm -hmm. counterintelligence is trying to inflict on us the whole time. Yeah, and then... Sorry, it's like... I'm I'm thinking about all this shit while you're you're talking about this stuff. I was going to make a joke earlier while you were talking about how like, what? No, we shouldn't just make decisions about what crimes to commit based on peer pressure. Um, And then I kind of like get lost in this rabbit hole where I'm thinking about how like so much of our our movement historically bases its decisions on what crimes to commit, basically by peer pressure, which you could also call social capital or whatever, you know? Um, And I I was thinking about in the context of like, you know, you and I addressing the fact that like, Hey, anyone listening to this, like, don't fucking take our word for it. Like, I really like that the way that you're describing security culture is a set of tools that people can use to make their own decisions about what risks they want to do, they want to tolerate personally. Mm-hmm. And and I actually think that a security culture tool might be basically like, if you feel like you're being 
uh, peer pressured into committing a crime, that's a huge red flag, right? Like so many of the different um, infiltrations that have happened, you know, the FBI fucking loves infiltrating radical movements of different types, um, especially at the moment, Islam, you know, like uh, what it considers like a lot Islamist movements or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And manufacturing criminals to then you know persecute right uh you know there's been so many instances of a lot of the actions that people go down for were always the fbi's idea in the first place and one of the main tools i think that that happens through is uh is social pressure um, and basically like, I'm now turning this into the ad of like, where like the kid walks up and is like, come on, man, don't you want to be cool and like do drugs or whatever? Like, no, do drugs only if you want to do drugs. And if you want to do drugs, that's fucking cool. If you want to commit crimes, like, uh, you know, whatever, think about the ethics of your actions, make your decisions based on ethics and risk, not based on crime. Um, crime just affects the risk part of it. And I don't know. Yeah. Just like fucking... like way too often when I meet like younger radicals, I just kind of want to be like, look, like I'm not saying be careful, but like be a little bit careful and like Mm -hmm. don't jump off a bridge because they're your best friends that you met two months ago are doing it, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think a healthy way of doing that is really cultivating a good self-awareness of, what your skills and your experience and your um, acceptable level of involvement is with different kinds of activities and Mm -hmm. of what you are willing to participate in, you know, ahead of time as much as possible. Um, And, and being really secure in that and not, not feeling peer pressure. And again, I think it's easiest and healthiest if we're able to do this in our movement of making that norm established from the get-go in a really clearly articulated way of, we're respecting each other's boundaries over mm-hmm. what they do or do not want to participate in. And we aren't going to encourage people to do things that they're not comfortable in, but also being able to know what feels right or what feels wrong, having that situational awareness of, Oh, this feels off to me and being able to trust our gut instinct mm-hmm. or at least, or, or at least listen to our gut instinct, at least, you know, <laughs> give it the time to think about the impact. Uh-huh. Um, because, you know, because, and, and I do want to, again, say that, um, you know, I've, I've made poor decisions solely listening to my gut instinct and not thinking mm-hmm. about the other power dynamics that were at play. And that's, and that's the real thing too, but situational awareness and tracking how a situation feels is a big way that our bodies intuitively know to manage risk. I mean, we're living creatures who, have existed in a risky world and we do have ways that we know how to move through that world and keep ourselves safe. And obviously we're in a totally different context, but trying to tap in to our intuitions is Mm -hmm. a a really helpful way. And I think, you know, again, that goes a lot back to people already practicing security culture on a regular basis, especially people who have experienced trauma or who are targeted by violence and brutality, having a heightened awareness of their surroundings and of the risks that they're being exposed to and making decisions in a much more intentional and active way than someone who is not at all needing to think about those things because they come from a social location and a privileged background that has insulated them. Could you like basically saying that like 
if you're a rich kid, you're a lot more, you're mm-hmm. a lot safer from a rich kid or, or white or, you know, have, have different sets of privileges. You're, you're less at risk with the decisions that you're making. Is that? Um, well, a little bit. I mean, I am saying if you're a rich white kid, you should go commit crime. <laughs> <laughs> I am saying that people who, uh, have experienced marginalization and brutality, you mm-hmm. know, oftentimes will have more situational awareness and will have, um, just like a more natural set of security practices that they're doing to keep themselves safe than someone who hasn't experienced those things. And so being able mm-hmm. to cultivate that awareness of what we're interacting with, with who we're interacting with, with our read on the situation, if something feels out of place, if there's a car parked behind the march with unmarked license plates that looks brand new mm-hmm. and it's got tinted windows and, oh, huh, that seems out of place. I wonder if I should keep an eye on that because it's either an undercover cop or a right-wing vigilante who's about to drive into the crowd. Right. You know, that is security culture and cultivating that awareness of who we're interacting with and how we're interacting with and the different risks is an important tool to just integrate into our everyday practice. No, I like that. I like this idea that... um being like conscious, like, like as like a a personal security culture technique or whatever, being conscious about what's happening and being conscious about your own choice in the decision or whatever. Uh, hmm. What am I trying to say? It's like, like the people who do shit because they're swept up in it. It's a, it's okay to be swept up in what's happening sometimes. Right. And I'm not trying to say like, never like go with the crowd because sometimes also like going with the crowd's literally the safest thing. Like, even if like, like sometimes when all your friends are jumping off a bridge, you should probably fucking jump off a bridge. Um, like, because if, if you chose your friends carefully, like sometimes I, I, I pick, I think about how I like pick my friends very carefully. And so therefore sometimes I trust their judgment more than my own. And sometimes solidarity like requires that. But if you're doing shit just because you're swept up in it, especially a crowd of strangers, especially something you're new to, um, it's not as good of a scene. And also like the people who do that are like literally more likely to roll. Like, you know, some of the people that I've seen, uh, turn state's evidence after, you know, felony arrests or whatever are the people who were just like kind of in it for the social capital. They were in it as a social scene. They were like, you know, like, oh, I guess all my friends are an anarchist, so I'm an anarchist too, or whatever the fuck, you know, um, which is a great way mm-hmm. to start getting involved in radical politics is like, pick cool friends and, you know, they do cool shit, break the law, breaking the law is cool. Uh, I I think I'm allowed to, I don't know, whatever. Um, <laughs> and, but the, the people who, who don't mean it, I don't trust them as much. And, and, I worry about like expressing mm-hmm. who I do and don't trust on this show because like, um, I, I just don't trust anyone, but that works for me, but apparently it doesn't work for most people. Um, so, but okay. To, to, to run with this paranoia thing for a minute, like one of the reasons I, I think that way is that like, yeah, when I first got involved in, um, in political activism or whatever, you know, I was involved in forest defense community in the Pacific Northwest and, 
I went to some of the last meetings of this particular forest defense crew and they were just like tree sitters and shit, right? It was like, it was illegalism, but it was like above ground illegalism. Like people who sit in a tree are like, hey, I fucking sit in trees, you know? Like that's like one thing I'll I'll like admit to, right? I've like sat in trees. Um, and, and so it's not, they're not like the super sketchy arsonists or whatever running around at night. They're not the ELF. Um, but they certainly were infiltrated as though they were. And I went to some of the last meetings of this organization uh, because I joined it near the end of its orga- end of its time. And then during a, a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request, where you send off to the government and say, please give us information about this. Or maybe it was during court discovery. I can't remember which. It came out that like I think about three out of eight or nine people in that meeting were um, informants or cops of one style or another. And so it's just like, okay, 30% of the people in this movement are informants, you know? Um, and, mm-hmm. and that is like the wrong sample to pick from, right? Very few movements. There certainly have been movements that have been as heavily infiltrated as this. Um, but most social movements are not as heavily infiltrated as, um, as the environmental movement was during the the early aughts. But I don't know. I don't know why I'm talking about that. I'm not specifically. No, that's I'm, that's an important point of, I mean, tracking that not only is it the immediate moment that you're doing whatever action you're trying to protect through security culture, mm-hmm. that discretion is important, but that it's it's something that you're then carrying with you mm-hmm. forever. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whatever we want to say about statute of limitations or not, <laughs> the point is that once you do something that you don't want to talk about, you should be fully prepared to not talk about that forever. Yeah. Forever. And and I think that's part of the process that maybe gets overlooked, again, when we're checking in with ourselves about what our boundaries are, what we're comfortable doing, and what we're able to do sustainably. Think about, am I able to do this, and am I able to then hold that with me and not be able to express, you know, oh, this specific thing that I did at this specific time gave me this lasting feeling that I really want to process through. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important and so, so, so frequently overlooked part is that we need to be prepared to be continuing our security culture practices indefinitely onwards. And so building in some rituals or some practices or some ways of being able to process through the intensity of what happened or to process through grief or honor that experience is, is I think a really cool possibility to see emerge out of security culture becoming more sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it can, otherwise it can kind of sit in you and just make you like, Yeah, I think that people don't don't recognize that when you make certain decisions you make are especially younger people, she said, um sometimes don't realize that like actions are permanent, you know, or like decisions mm-hmm. you make have permanent impacts, which actually we forget about in the other direction too. I think sometimes we forget that like the uh, the the fires we light today are beacons for the future. I don't, you know, whatever, don't start fires, do whatever. I'm not trying to tell people what to fucking do, but like it can, you know, it's, it's like interesting to realize that you're also like part of 
fucking making history too, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so the, the decisions we make have permanent impacts in, in positive and negative and more complicated than that ways. Absolutely. And, and I think that's something that I lean in frequently of using security culture in the most dry analytical way possible of just thinking about this as a tool to mitigate risk. Mm-hmm. And that's such a cool thing to also be thinking about the activities we're involved in and the totally idealistic and romantic and visionary ways that they also are. Mm-hmm. And so security culture, by being so methodical and being able to give me that basis of security to act from, then allows me to be able to like fantasize about the world that I want to be a part of and not be enmeshed in anxiety or paranoia over how the state is going to respond to me enacting that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I think that having good security culture practices is a good way to... Well, it's like prepping in general, right? Like I have my to-go bag or whatever, and it's not so that I can sit around and like freak out about what to do if the forest I'm in catches fire, which is the most likely scenario by which I would need my, my go bag, right? Um, but I, I now mostly put the thought of the fear of that out of my head because I've done roughly the best I can. I, I have roughly yeah. what I would need if that were the case. And in terms of like, you know, um, having the pretense of being a revolutionist or whatever, uh, just inherently by calling myself an anarchist, um, I, there's a, there is a certain amount of risk. Like, uh, you know, I remember trying to explain it to someone that I was like, yeah, if, if Antifa is designated a domestic terrorist organization or whatever, like, even though I don't do shit, that could really directly impact me personally, because I'm very public about, um, you know, my, my beliefs. Right. And, but I can't worry about that. And so what I can do instead is come up with my best practices, put them into place and then be like, you know, not wash my hands of it, but like basically be like, all right, I'm doing the best I can on that front. And like, Mm-hmm. Yeah, if if Biden lives up to his campaign promise of like prosecuting anarchists, like that might impact me, you know? I, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> like but it but there, that's not within my control and like I what's within my control is to just like you know, know who knows about when I graffitied something in 2002 which I didn't do. Um I yeah. literally didn't. It's just a, I'm just trying to come up with a bullshit thing I can say on the show. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but to just drive it home all the time. I mean, that's, and that's great. And what you're doing is you're alleviating that possible concern or anxiety over not being prepared for the forest fire by mm. just always being prepared for the forest fire. Yeah. You know, you're just mitigating that risk ahead of time and that's opening you up to being able to do what you really want to be doing safely and not being concerned about it all the time because it's just your standard operating procedure. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the other thing too, with like security culture is this like, we also have to make sure it doesn't give us a false sense of safety. Um, and I think you brought this up earlier, but if there's like a point I want to like drive home as we're probably, you know, winding down or whatever, it's just like, this isn't safe. Right. But honestly, like, choosing to believe in revolution feels like the better when I look at the, like the cost benefit analysis, like it's safer to 
like we're more likely to survive to be old if we fucking overthrow capitalism and like halt climate change you know um even if it like yeah brings it, with it short-term risk like up to us it's yeah. up to us to to live yeah um i guess i want to mm-hmm. just end on some very specific concrete mm-hmm. things to do for security this has been really great to talk with you about the overall picture which i think mm-hmm. oftentimes is missing but it would feel a little remiss to not say some specifics like yeah one don't cooperate with the police mm-hmm. don't talk with law enforcement um you know you have a right to remain silent you have a right to a lawyer don't answer questions don't answer questions about your friends just be silent yeah and a great way to get more comfortable with that is to practice you know, practice not answering a direct question from police. It's socially awkward. It takes energy. Um, also, you know, researching know your rights trainings, which mm-hmm. are readily available online and being more informed about some of the safeties that you do have or some of the ways that you can interact with that mm-hmm. is really important. That that just feels like the foundational thing. Don't talk to cops. Mm-hmm. Um Another simple thing would just be, you know, with so much going on digitally because of the pandemic, um, there's just been a lot going on through Zoom and Facebook and Google. And you should just always assume anything going on over social media or over a large email server is publicly available Mm -hmm. to right wing vigilantes and to the police. Um, So as best as you can, try to normalize using encrypted messaging like Signal or uh, encrypted email like RiseUp or ProtonMail, just for everything, not just for your activism. Um, and even then, don't share things online or over Signal that you wouldn't want read back to you in a courtroom in a criminal hearing. Right. And, you know, ultimately, I, I think that just staying abreast as much as possible and reading about counterinsurgency and about state repression and learning about how movements historically have responded is probably the best way to set yourself up. And so I compiled a bunch of resources that I found very helpful historically. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could list them in the show notes for people, but yeah. there's some great uh, there's some great manuals, both constructed by the state about how to implement counterinsurgency and how to manage popular movements. And then also lots of great books just looking at how social movements have resisted that and continue to win. Okay. Is there any other any other thing that we, we didn't talk about that we should have? You know, there's a lot of talk of operational security in the mm-hmm. prepper world, which is kind of the closest thing I found to uh, right-winger security culture. Mm-hmm. And time and time again, I'm just so surprised how at the end of the day, their solution to security risks comes through stockpiling ammunition and being prepared to shoot your way out of any situation. (laughs) And the thing that I love about being part of this community is how much of a focus we have on relationships and on community. Mm -hmm. And ultimately I do think we get our security from each other. You know, we're only as strong as we're able to be with each other and being able to work through conflict and being able to work with each other safely to create the kind of world is so much more transformative than stockpiling ammunition and dehydrated food in your basement. Yeah. And, you know, 
at the same time, there's a lot of great stuff to be found through right wing and prepper communities on operational security. Um, that's especially a huge topic in military intelligence realms and is well worth researching. Also, again, looking up situational awareness tools and techniques, which is another big hub used by various prepper and right wing groups. Mm-hmm. Um, looking up different risk management tools, which is, you know, a huge field developed by like business leaders and techies and nonprofits. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of tools out there and we can apply them to do the good work that we need to be doing. That makes sense. Yeah, one of the, you know, just like reading about, um, just to, to continue with the like, the only way out is through kind of concept sometimes is I, I read about, when you're, when you're talking about how like the main way to, to stay safe is relationships, right? Like solidarity has always been our strongest weapon and in a, in a very like practical, direct way, even down to like, when revolutionists all go to jail for trying to trying to have a revolution, the main thing that gets them out of jail again is that when other people keep trying to have a revolution and whether whether that revolution wins and frees the prisoners or whether uh, basically the the existing system is like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. Maybe if we let some of these people out, they'll like, you know. Uh, with the Frederick Douglass quote, power concedes nothing without a demand, you know? Um, yeah. And yeah, just um, not abandoning people when they're inside or not abandoning people just period. It's our, our, our best bet, even as individuals to stay safe. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I don't know. F- final thoughts. Uh, I'm just happy to be able to be on here and share some of the tools that I've learned, but I really want to say I'm not an expert. And if you're in a different situation than me, you've got different tools to use. You've got different lessons to learn. You know, this is what we make of it. And I'm really excited to see the ways that people are going to continue to adapt these tools for their own circumstances. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you should tell people about it because it's not a security culture that has supposed to try and make a joke about how it's like security culture as relates to telling people about things about the podcast, but I don't know how to land it. So I won't tell that joke. Um, but you can tell people about the podcast and that would mean a lot. And people have been doing that. And that means a lot to me. If you want to support the podcast more directly, you can do so by following me on Patreon. My Patreon is patreon.com slash Margaret Kiljoy. And if you support me at any level, you get a bunch of access to zines and music and me writing, I'm sorry I'm late on the following things, notes to you all that are painfully earnest and heartfelt. Um, and if you support me at $10, I'll mail you a zine. If you support me at $20, I'll shout out your name in a minute, like I'm about to shout out people's names in a minute. Um, but also, if you live off of less money than I make on Patreon, please don't uh, give your money to me. Give your money to yourself. <laughs> because you need it more than I do. And if you want access to the content that I make um, that's behind that paywall, just contact me and you can have access to that. You can contact me um, in general. You can contact me on Instagram, uh, which is Instagram Margaret Kiljoy, or I'm at Magpie Kiljoy on Twitter. Don't follow me on Facebook. I have I, I hate Facebook. I use it, but it's weird. I don't know. I mean, they're all weird. 
you're not really waiting for me to talk about social media. You're waiting for me to end the episode. So in particular, I would like to thank Eleanor and Mike and Satara and Kat J, The Compound, Shane, Christopher, Sam, Natalie, Willow, Kirk, Hoss the Dog, Nora, and Chris. Yeah, you all make this possible in a way that, um, I don't know, it, it warms my heart in the aforementioned uh, embarrassingly heartfelt and earnest ways. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening, and I hope you're doing as well as you can with everything that's going on, um, and we keep us safe. Mm-hmm.